we know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Normally, I spend the first few minutes commenting on some outrage in the UFO community. But today, I have two special guests, Dr. Jacques Vallée and Ms. Paula Harris, to tell us about an event that took place two years before the Roswell UFO crash. There were two witnesses to the original story, but later others were involved. But rather than hear me talk about it, I'm going to just bring on the guest. Anyone who's been around the UFO field for more than 10 minutes will know who Jacques Vallée is. He needs no introduction, but I'm going to provide one anyway. Uh, Jacques F. Vallée is a principal in Domentica financial, and a diversified investor. He earned a bachelor's degree in mathematics from the Sorbonne, a master's degree in astrophysics from Lille University, and a PhD in computer science, science and artificial intelligence from Northwestern University in 1967. He's based in the Silicon Valley and has served as the founder and general partner of five venture funds, including NASA's Red Planet Capital. In his early career, Jacques worked at the Paris Observatory and at the Astronomy Department at the University of Texas in Austin, where he co-developed the first computer-based map of the planet Mars. Moving to California after management positions with Shell and RCA, he implemented with Jacques, uh, I'm sorry, Jake, I'm, I'm into the Jacques mode here, Jake, Jake uh, Findler, the first network information center on uh, Ard Planet and later served as a principal investor for DARPA and NSF. Jacques published several textbooks about computer networking and has maintained a long-term interest in unidentified flying objects, currently serving as an expert on the committee, uh, the expert committee of the French CNES, as tasked with studying uh, the reports of UFOs. He received the Jules Verne Prize for his first science fiction novel. I'm going to talk to him about that in a minute. Uh, in France, he resides between San Francisco and parents. He has two children and three grandchildren. And anyone who has been around the field for more than 20 minutes knows the name of Paula, Paula Harris. And I'll give her uh, background here. She is an Italian-American photojournalist and investigative reporter in the field of extraterrestrial-related phenomenon research. She is also widely published freelance writer, especially in Europe. She produces the annual Star Work USA conference in Laughlin, Nevada. Yola has studied extraterrestrial-related phenomena since 1979 and is on the personal terms with many of the leading researchers in the field. From 1980 to 1986, she assisted Dr. J. Allen Hynek with his UFO investigations and has interviewed many top military witnesses concerning their involvement in the government truth embargo. In 1997, Ms. Harris met and interviewed Colonel Philip Corso in Roswell, New Mexico, and became personal friend and confidant. She was instrumental in having his book, The Day After Roswell, uh, for which she wrote the introduction, or the preface, translated into Italian. She consequently <clears throat> brought the Colonel, Coast, Colonel Corso to Italy. I'm having trouble with my English today for some reason. Colonel Corso to Italy for editorial group Futuro and the 
publisher of, and it's the name, I'm sure it's the name Day After Roswell in Italian, so I'll just say the Day After Roswell. And Corso was present for many TV appearances and two conferences. She returned to Roswell in the summer of 2003 for the American debut of her book, Connecting the Dots, Making Sense of the UFO Phenomenon. Because of her international perspective on extraterrestrial-related phenomena, Viola has consulted with many researchers about the best avenues for planetary disclosure with emphasis on the big picture and stressing the historical connection. She was a close friend of the late Monsignor Padre Corrado Balsieri and assisted in filming the Italian witness, including the Monsignor, for the disclosure project for the May 9th, May 9th, 2001 press conference held, I guess, in Washington, D.C., if I remember correctly. She is instrumental in bringing to the to Italy Robert Dean, Dr. Stephen Greer, Linda Moulton Howe, Dr. Richard Boylan, R Russell Targ, Travis Walton, Daryl Sims, Helmut Lamnier, Michael Rindeman, Michael Lindeman, Nick Pope, Bill Hamilton, Ryan Wood, and Carlos Diaz, and of course, John Mack. Her new nonprofit association, Starworks Italia, will continue to bring speakers to Italy and promote disclosure and extra-political dialogue worldwide. Viola uh, lives in Rome and Boulder, Colorado. I'll get to that later, too, because I grew up in the Denver area and has uh, a master's degree in education. She teaches history and photojournalism and online classes at Exopolitics for Dr. Michael Sala's Exopolitics Institute, for which she is an international liaison director. Dr. Valet, Ms. Harris, thank you so much for taking time to join me on A Different Perspective. It's a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Uh, I think the best way to start this, and I, I think Piola at the... Paula, the best way is briefly, what is the story we're talking about here? What is the Trinity book about? Well, I can begin because I started working on it um, about nine years ago. I had heard about uh, a crash where two little Indian boys, they were described as two little Indian boys, were the witnesses. I had read about it in the Socorro uh, Journal, and I was living in Italy at the time. I've since moved back to, you know, to the Boulder area here. Um, but I, I thought right away, Kevin, like in normal, I thought, well, why aren't my colleagues jumping on this? Since the witnesses are still alive, uh, they obviously know the location, and there's all these details. Well, nobody did. When I moved back in 2007, I forgot about it. And then in, 2000, in about 2012, I got this telephone call from the son of the pilot that did the overflight of that particular situation. And he gave me the telephone number of the six-year-old. These were... Uh, uh, of the seven-year-old, these were uh, seven- and nine-year-old kids, and they were Hispanic, not Native, Native American. And I began to research it, and I, I started doing it by going on location, by um, flying to Washington State and getting the testimony of the seven-year-old. Good thing I did, because he passed away of diabetes. So we have him on film. We have his testimony uh, and the other, the nine-year-old is getting older. So I started doing that, and then I'll let Jack jump in because four years ago he was doing the same thing, and we met up, and we've been researching it on location ever since. You mean Dr. Valet was interested in the same case? He was doing research on the same case? Right. Well, I okay. should... Um... I should back up a little bit and, and, and maybe, uh, uh, you know, eat some humble pie here. Because <laughs> as uh, in contrast to Paola, I have not really spent much time looking at uh, UFO crashes. And the reason was that, uh, well, there was, I have a good excuse, which is that I, I was doing all kinds of, of other things, looking for patterns and uh, databases and investing, you know, investigating cases around the world, and especially in France, and trying to merge the French cases with the American cases and so on, when I was working with Dr. Heineck. But um, people have accused me of not paying attention to uh, Roswell and to other cases like that. And, and that's a valid, you know, accusation. Um, 
I felt that the there wasn't, and, and when I was talking to colleagues in science and so on, I, I, I had trouble uh, convincing them that this was important because the many of the witnesses were anonymous, or if they were not, they uh, they hadn't witnessed the uh, the actual arrival of the object. They they came in, you know, sometime later. Uh, you had to reconstruct the, the history, and much of the evidence had been taken away you know, by the military and was was secret. And it was uh, so it, it looked like the real data was pretty much inaccessible or very very hard to to work with uh, for you know for a scientist. Uh, one scientist uh, told me, well, you know, those are interesting stories, but you haven't given me anything I can take to my lab. And that's generally, you know, it's not completely true, but it's generally true. Let me interrupt yep. here, because I think we're a little bit of ahead of ourselves. And what I would like to know is, um, either one of you, what exactly is the story we're telling here? Let's let's get the facts well, out. I'm I'm, uh, I'm coming to that. Uh, okay. I, you know, showing you what my own path has been and how I I came to this one uh, and why this this story is unique. Um, I I have I had um, worked with a friend who was from New Mexico and um, had started to um, to reinvestigate some of the crash cases in New Mexico, including including Roswell. And he convinced me to start looking at it, and he introduced me to this case. Uh, this case uh, was particularly important because it took place two years before Roswell, as, as Paula said. Um, we're looking at a little town called San Antonio, which is about 20 miles north of where the, the first atomic bomb exploded, and um, where two... Um, so, you, again, we have to go back to, to those times. The most adults who were in age of fighting were still in uniform, even though this was the, the end of the war in Europe. The war in Japan was you know, continuing. You have uh, two little kids who are essentially doing much of the work on the property owned by their father, um, or the father of one, one of the two. And uh, that includes driving the truck, even though the, the, the eldest kid was nine-year-old. Uh, they drive the truck over to this property, which is 80,000 acres. They take care of the cattle, they take care of the fences, and so on. And then, on that you know that particular day, um, an object comes out of nowhere and crashes on top of their head. I mean, it, it literally comes over, hits a communication tower, which is on the property, which is... But it's really part of the complex of uh, White Sands and Alamogordo, um, you know, Air Force Base. So it's it's really watching over that that entire territory. The object bumps into the tower, damages the tower, and proceeds to crash. But it didn't disintegrate the way an airplane would have done. It made a controlled crash landing under power. Um, dug up a trench in the landscape all the way to a, uh, a rise in the terrain where it made a, a, a turn and then came to rest. The only damage was one panel from that object, which was obviously a metal, a metal object, uh, sort of egg-shaped, and uh, rested there. The kids rushed to help thinking that, again, there was no... The term flying saucer didn't exist. I mean, Roswell was still two years in the future. Uh, and they Dr. rushed Valley, to see if they could help. And, Valley, uh, I need to interrupt here. We've got to take a break. Got to take okay. a break and pay, pay a few bills, I guess, that sort of thing. Uh, when we come back, we'll, be, we'll, we'll pick up the story there and get into some more of the details. The book is Trinity, The Best Kept Secret by Dr. Jacques Vallée and Paula Harris, uh, available at Amazon. 
as well as everywhere else, I suppose. You are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. We'll be right back after this, so please stick around. family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pound i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas to learn more we spoke to dr brian strand from sonabello while some people can eat everything and stay thin Others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save two. $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. I am here with both Jacques Vallée and Viola Harris. We're talking about Trinity, the best-kept secret. And when we took our break, I think we just got the craft crashed into the ground intact, more or less intact, and two young boys, seven and nine years old, had witnessed this um, accident. Uh, Jacques, you were expanding on that, so I'll throw it back to you here. Well, what was unique and, and uh, really, as I said, I had not, I had been somewhat. Uh, away from uh, studies of, of actual crashes because there, was, there, there wasn't that much evidence I could take that would be convincing to my colleagues. In this case, we have a, a number of very unique situations. First, as I, as I just mentioned, the two witnesses were there before the object arrived. They saw it arrive. It, it literally crashed over their heads. They rushed to, to help thinking it was an airplane accident. And remember, the war was in, in the minds of everybody at that point, and uh, they knew that the first thing you need to do is is provide help to anyone who's been in such an accident. So re they rushed forward. They realized very quickly that this was not an airplane, and the little creatures they saw were not pilots. The, the other uh, unique... Uh, element was that they knew the territory very well. This is not like somebody going to Argentina or to Mexico for a couple of days to to, to uh, investigate a case, not knowing the language or the situation or the geography and so on, and, which is always questionable. Here, they they lived there. They, uh, they were trusted by their parents to take care of the cattle, they were well equipped. Uh, they knew the territory. They knew they were on horseback. They could travel very quickly. They had binoculars because they had to read the brands on the on the cattle from a distance to make sure that um, you know the the herd was was in good shape and so on. That's what they did. So uh, we have a very unusual situation there where we have the best possible witnesses. Uh, when they the, the there was fire, uh, there was the, the vegetation was on fire. There was smoke. Uh, they got to so it was somewhat of a chaotic scene. They got to about 200 feet from the object, and then they saw that through that opening that had been created when the object hit the tower, they could see three creatures inside. So we have, just the first day, we have this abundance of description 
of of evidence of uh, tangible material data. The army is going to uh, notice this case. They are going to send a detachment to uh, investigate and to take away this craft. Um, the the kids are going to be there for the next eight days, and they will be able to provide a detailed description of any, everything that the military did to recover this so-called weather balloon. So, uh, you know, I'll let uh, Paola develop, you know, what happened after that. Well, let me let me ask a question here quickly. Did it bother either of you that the witnesses were so young at the time of the event? No, on, on, on the contrary. Um, I think most uh, accident investigators will tell you that very often kids that age are the best possible witnesses they may not have the technical vocabulary to describe something, but they don't add their own impressions. An adult will tend to uh, to build a story around it. To you know, he wants to be helpful, and so he or she, uh, you know, will describe things that um, were not the actual facts of the case, but their own impression or deduction from it. The kids don't try to build up a story of what happened or how it happened or why. They will tell you, you know, it came from there, it bumped into this, it crashed, uh, I lost sight of it, then there was a smoke and I we, we went there and, you know, we uh, this is what we saw and, and, you know, don't ask me to tell you what it was. But the and, but the problem but the problem with that analysis is if you're interviewing kids who've just witnessed an accident that may be true but you're talking to men who have lived literally decades after the event so doesn't that kind of destroy the the idea that the kids' memories uh, would be accurate they wouldn't have added anything to it because the interviews took place so much later. So in uh, analyzing the transcripts, uh, which I've done again and again, and thanks to uh, Paola, we have transcripts that that were done, you know, very professionally uh, of of both of them, and they we can cross-index them. They don't describe exactly the same thing because again, the age difference and the the background difference. But um, that's what you expect. You don't expect uh, uh, witnesses to 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 be comp- to use exactly the same words in the same sequence. But you can reconstruct what happens, and then we have two independent views of of the whole thing that give us, you know, additional strength to the to the testimony. Um, number one, there was a pilot who saw all this happen which is, again, a third element that is unique, uh, that we don't have that in Roswell, we don't have that in, you know, in Valenzuel or in Socorro uh, or in other places. Um, he was coming in for a landing at Alamogordo, which is uh, just south of White Sands, uh, of, the, of the big White Sands um, uh, military, uh, military base. Um, he was asked by his controller to take a look at the tower because they had lost communication and they were wondering what had happened to the tower. So he flew over the tower that had just been hit and uh, described that there was some damage to the tower, that there was a fire in the in the vegetation, in the bushes. The, the object was not on fire, contrary to what one book uh, mentions. Uh, which is understandable, but the, it was a creosote and the cactus and, and the vegetation that was very dry that was burning. There was a lot of smoke. He saw the object from the air, and he saw two, what he called two little Indian boys. Well, they were not Indian, uh, although Jose has um, a grandmother who was uh, who was an Apache um, leader, in fact, in the area. Um, but the uh, they were Hispanic, and uh, but he saw the, the two boys with their horses. So we know the boys are not making up, you know, making up a story. He described all that in the military report, and we believe you, that you have he a copy of the military one. report. 
um, we have we don't have access to the report. This would be a report from 1945, but his son uh, knew the story, and his son independently described what his father had told him. So you didn't talk to the pilot himself. I think his name was what, Roth Rothery. You didn't talk to him, you talked to his son. That's correct. Paula yes. spoke to okay. his son. Okay. Yes, he was, yes, so we left he out another dead, thing. He was dead by then. You know, many of the, the uh, adult witnesses uh, had died by the time the... Uh, you know, the, the reason the book is called uh, Trinity, the Best Kept Secret is that both sides kept the secret. The army never spoke about it. They took it away. They turned it over to a lab somewhere. We think we have an idea of where it went and why nobody knew about it. And then the kids kept it secret for 70 years for their own reason. They never came forward. They didn't, didn't come they, forward but, when, there was, when Roswell took place. You'd expect I, they would say, hey, hey, you know, we saw something too. Uh, you know, get me on TV. You know, I want to testify. They, they were hiding the information they had for some reasons that we can go into that were very good reasons, which actually lends a lot of credibility to, to what they say now. So there was corroborating evidence from other places, uh, the three people went inside the object eventually, including a state policeman and the father of uh, Jose Padilla. Jose Padilla is still alive. He can testify. And in analyzing the transcript, there is some, I've had some experience with that, analyzing transcripts of, for example, psychic descriptions and, and um, you know, other types of testimony. It's very interesting to see that they go from the past to the present tense, as if all of a sudden they were there. And, uh, you know, I've had experiences in my, you know, about that age. And, uh, you know, between the time when I was three and the time when I was five, I was in the middle of the war. Uh, you know, I grew up in a place that was bombed 17 times in World War II. Well, let me, let me interrupt the access let, from let, Paris to Normandy. Let me interrupt and, here. Let me interrupt here because I think we're getting a little bit far afield. and I don't have a lot of time and, and we haven't given Paul a, a chance to talk about much of this. Um, the boys saw the, the craft. They went home and reported to their parents. The parents, the, the men came back. They looked at the craft with the state policeman. Uh, Paul, can you pick it up there? Was the army involved? When did the army show up? The army, the army Air Force at the time. You know that the army wasn't the army until two years later. But the thing that we that we have to look at here is that Shock and I've been back on the location. At least we've been back at least eight times. And we, you know, when we have the witness, some a witness like Jose who talks about Sheriff Apodaca and knows every name of everybody in his town. Uh, and 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 relive the thing right in front of you. We know that these we know these people are telling the truth. The difference is that they didn't uh, talk about it because they're watching the recovery. And I think this is where you want to go, Jacques. They're watching the recovery. These two little boys. They were told not to go back. Uh, they're watching their recovery, and because they want to go in there and get a, a, a souvenir. They want to go inside the craft and pull something out, get a souvenir. But they have to wait until the boys, and they were young boys that were doing the cleanup. I don't think anybody expected something to fall one month after the atomic bomb explosion, you know, 20 miles from ground zero. There was only one watering hole. That was the, the uh, Owl Bar and Cafe. We've been there so many times where Oppenheimer and all the scientists had their cabins. The boys knew all of the, the people that went in there. Jose bought the, the hamburger for the, for the cafe. You know, he was driving a truck at nine. And so here he knows who's cleaning it up. Uh, he's uh, there. They know the people. They're waiting until the, the young guys go back to the Owl Bar because they put it on a flatbed truck. They're about to take it out. So Jose and, and Remy wanted a souvenir. They, they, so Jose goes inside 
The craft sees this plaque on the wall, uh, asks Remy for the crowbar, and he pulls it off. So there is a piece to this. There's the location, the witnesses, and a piece, which is very unusual for any kind of case. Uh, where is it now? The piece is with Jacques. It's in uh, California. It will be donated to the uh, to the world in about ten years. It's going to a university, and it's a substantial size piece. It's being analyzed, so it has all of these scientific kinds of 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 uh, you know uh, things we can look at. And uh, the the book, and I'm going to tell you this, Kevin. It's mostly a history book. It is so precisely written by Jacques. Well, and let me, the, let, me the research let me interrupt here. Done. Let me interrupt here because I've got to take another break. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about that history in the book. So we'll get onto that. The book, of course, is Trinity: The Best Kept Secret. We're talking about uh, two young boys who witnessed this. Apparently, we're down to one living witness who actually saw the stuff itself and was involved in uh, is observing the recovery operation. But there's a lot of other history in the book, and I wanted to talk about some of that because I found that very interesting as well. And so when we come back, we'll do that. You are listening to A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Red Network. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. Joined by Jacques Vallée and Gala Harris, we're talking about Trinity, the best kept secret. And when we went away, we were just getting into the history, some of the history in the book. And I wanted to talk about that. I have actually a couple of comments about that. Um, first, I was concerned about the discussion of the Aurora, Texas crash from 1897 and the emphasis put on that. I was there in 1971. I think I may have been one of the first people in the modern era to actually go to Aurora, Texas. And I talked to the people at the Wise County Historical Society, which is Aurora, Texas being in Wise County. And they told me the event didn't take place. It was a hoax. They said two histories of Wise County had been written within a decade of the crash. Uh, I think one coming out in um, 1910, one of them coming out in 1906 or 1907. Um, histories of the county. And neither one mentioned this, this UFO crash. And yet we have in your book a brief section about the Aurora, Texas crash. And I wonder what convinced you that there was some legitimacy to, to that uh, event. So uh, one thing you do in, you know, in, when you, you're doing um, an analysis of, uh, uh, of a case is you try to put it in the context of other stories uh, that can teach you uh, something about the, the background, the history, the coincidences, or the correlations, and so on, uh, both in, in terms of the social reaction to, to the story and also in terms of the, the physical, the physical evidence, um, the, the 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 case in Aurora. I was the first to publish it. Um, I was uh, pointed. Uh, it, Dr. Heineck pointed it to me. Uh, he knew that I was interested in the history of the phenomenon in general. Um, you know, going back many years or decades, and uh, he he mentioned it. I researched it. Uh, we found the original article, and I published it, and 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 it was forgotten, and then it was rediscovered by people who wanted to investigate it, and I'm I'm glad that uh, you know you, you took the, the the time to do that. I think every every uh, new investigation is a, a, a contribution. Um, I uh, I I saw all the positive. You know things about it, and I I'm aware of all the negatives. My role in that catalog of cases that I mentioned in the book is is simply to put the this particular story against the background of um, of other cases. And I'm not saying that they've been validated. I mean, there is uh, 
another case, uh, you know, a case that happened before Kenneth Arnold in 1947, where everybody tells me, no, no, it's a hoax, it's a hoax, it's a hoax. Well, it's a hoax, but it has all the earmarks of later cases that we know are not hoaxes. So the the question is, uh, you know, as a scientist, is let me uh, try to get a sample from that so-called hoax and and test it. And that's, uh, you know, that's the proof of the pudding. Now, in the case of Aurora, yes, I'm well aware that it was considered, it was written up as, as uh, you know, amusing, uh, sort of cowboy-like, uh, you know, early, uh, early st- Americana, um, very colorful, and, you know, people can laugh at it. But um, uh, MUFON has done uh, an investigation there with people from an aircraft company, and they've published extensive reports that uh, I've been I've been reading. They uh, interrogated some of the witnesses who were still alive, who were neighbors of uh, the uh, the men who owned the property where this crashed, and uh, gave them a report, gave them testimony. And so here's, then they, the they, they dug the up a number. They dug up a number of artifacts. I have not tested them because I don't have access to them. But if I have access to them, I'd like to test them. But here's that's the problem the with the that. Pudding. Here's the problem with that. When 1971 was when I was there, prior to Mufon showing up, before um, Hayden Hughes, I think it was, uh, showed up, I talked to those same people, and they said it didn't happen. There's one guy whose uh, hands were very gnarled and um, distorted by, I think, rheumatoid arthritis. And he told me that, no, it didn't happen. He was alive at the time. I talked to these people. And later on, I see this guy doing interviews on television, the same guy saying, yes, yes, it happened, and giving a much, uh, a very, very vivid description of what had happened. Uh, my point simply is, we have no documentation supporting the 1897 crash. We have um, it, it, one newspaper article that fit into the whole concept of the 1897 airship. We have witnesses who said it didn't happen and then saying it did. We have documentation from the time that doesn't mention it should have. And I think that kind of leads us to the point that this probably did not take place. Um in this kind of investigation, you have to take a lot of different things into account. If you read in, in the book, the, you know, I, I put the case in San Antonio in the context of two other cases, Socorro, in which you can find a lot of people who say it didn't happen, um, or it didn't happen this way, or it was an ord- a perfectly ordinary thing. There's a recent article in a UFO magazine that says that Socorro wasn't a UFO, okay? And, and the case in Valençal, which was inv- investigated by five different agencies of the French government for, you know, security reasons, and where the, the, the testimony of the witness is uh, being challenged in exactly the same terms. But there, where we know that that it ha- in fact happened. The, so well, you, let's talk, you let's to talk about let's talk about Socorro because I did a book called Encounter in the Desert, which was an analysis of the Socorro sighting, and I'm with you on this one. I I think this is a, a very good case for an extraterrestrial spacecraft landing. Um, but well, I, I have don't some, know if it's extraterrestrial. I mean, there is something that landed that wasn't ours. I'm I'm taking the step toward extraterrestrial. I'm I'm doing that myself. Um, but but there are some problems with the case. Um, for example, the the description of the symbol on the side of the case, which I I've, I've never understood how this thing got so out of proportion. There were two symbols described. One was an inverted V with three lines through it, and one was what I call the umbrella symbol, which was a an arc over an arrow, an inverted V with a shaft to it, looking like an arrow. Lonnie Zamora, on the night that this happened, five minutes after the craft took off, he drew that symbol on a scrap of paper. That scrap of paper was in the Project Blue Book files. And I I think in your book, you now endorse the inverted V with the three lines through it. And I'm wondering how we get from the dichotomy of what Lonnie Zamora 
described and wrote on the night that this happened into this idea of the three V's. Uh, I'm sorry, the three lines through the V. I wonder how we got to that discrepancy. Well, uh, I um, uh, described the, the three different versions of the symbol. Uh, the, they, uh, the Socorro police decided they didn't want to publish the, the actual symbol, and uh, they, uh, they made up another, another symbol that they gave to the press. So they, are, they were the ones obfuscating the actual case. The, the one of the uh, one of the three symbols comes from a uh, handwritten letter from Dr. Heineck, uh, who the 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 day he um, interrogated uh, Lonnie Zamora. So all I can do is give you the three different versions of the symbol. Well, I have some idea about what the symbol actually is, by the way, uh, and and what it's what it represents and what it's linked to, but I, I want to keep that to myself for a while, too, because, again, uh, once you start rumors, and the police knew that there would be lots of different rumors, and that's why they wanted to make sure that if some other witness came up and could describe the symbol, that would be one way to validate the, the veracity of the testimony. So that's, what, that's why it was done. Well, I know why it was done. It was it was to to keep copycats from from talking about the uh, yes, about the crash. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And two of the copycats were a guy named I think Kais and Kratzner, who were from Dubuque, Iowa, who claimed to have seen the the object, um, I guess, take off. And I know in the book you talk about their testimony a little bit. I believe that they were not telling the truth, and the reason I believe that is because they described the craft. In not just the article that appeared in the, I think it's the Dubuque Herald, Herald Telegraph, Herald, and uh, an interview done by Ralph DeGraw some some years later about the craft having a row of round silvery windows on it, which of course Lonnie Zamora never yeah. described. So right. doesn't that well that goes back that, to the adult testimony? You know, I'd rather have a twelve-year-old or a nine-year-old describe what he saw. Um, what again the mo the most difficult thing about uh, that period is to to bring the reader in you know in in writing our book bring the reader to the conditions of the time i mean why would a 9 year old be driving a truck okay uh, why would you uh, why would they have binoculars that were just as good as the binoculars of the uh, of the army air force you know why would they so you look for correlations, you look for, and, and then you look for the, the conditions. I, I've investigated a number of cases where the witnesses were first, the first reaction is, no, nothing happened, I haven't seen anything, leave me alone, okay? And then when you find out, you find out that either they were instructed to say that, um, which is the case in many military cases, as I think you know very well, or uh, they're, they're afraid, or they've been uh, hassled by uh, journalists and made, you know, they've been ridiculed, they've been called liars. Um, you know, that includes, remember the case of Herb Shermer, uh, where his wife divorced him when he came up, uh, when he described his case, his, um, his observation, and then he, um, he had to leave the, um, the, the police. He had to uh, you know, run away essentially from from the town where he lived. Well, let me let me interrupt. So, so no wonder, no wonder, uh, well, Kevin. No wonder no, witnesses no, are going to say, "No, no, I didn't see anything." And then, no, if wait, you gain their wait. confidence, uh, John, which is wait, what I try to do in, in my methodology, if you gain their confidence, then you begin to get the real story. Well, let me let me. I just wanted to interrupt here because I wanted to explain to the the audience here that Herb Schimmer was a police officer in Ashland, Nebraska, who saw a landed, uh, landed UFO in 1967. Um, he believed he would, the story is he was taken on board he, under hypnotic regression. He remembered the, the abduction phenomenon, and then uh, he was investigated by the University of Colorado's uh, study in uh, the Condon Committee study, and I wanted the audience to get that yes, context absolutely. of what was going Good. on. Yeah, I spoke to him and um, had a long personal, emotional 
discussion with him, as you usually get into when when you study those cases. This is not just you know a report of a, of, of a car accident. Uh, and again, um, you know, remember that I grew up in the middle of World War II. I saw airplanes being shot. I saw um, you know uh, pilots falling with their parachute being killed in the air. You know, I saw that when I was a kid. So I, I understand what witnesses of extreme conditions, when they were kids, that if you bring them back to that time, they're going to tell the truth. I can tell you exactly where I was. I was four years old, okay? And fortunately, I wasn't hurt psychologically because I never saw, uh, you know, tragedy up close. And my parents, uh, you know, my father had been in World War I, uh, was a very courageous man. He knew when there was danger or not. So uh, I felt protected when I saw that, but I did see it. Well, let me interrupt here because I'm going to have to take one more break. Um, the book is Trinity, the Best of, best Kept Secret by Jacques Vallée and Paula Harris. I'm sorry, Paul, we haven't gotten much to you on this discussion here. No, that's okay. For that. We'll get back. And when we come back, I wanted to ask uh, Jacques Vallée about something he said about Project Blue Book that I found very fascinating. And it seemed to corroborate something that I have in a book that I called UFOs in the Deep State. We will be back right after that with Jacques Vallée and Paula Harris talking about uh, the Trinity, the best kept secret. So please stick around. to a different perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. I'm sitting here with Jacques Vallée and Paula Harris, and I should say we're not sitting together in the same room, but we are all together on various communication devices. Before we get into other parts, I, there was something that, that intrigued me in the book, that you said that Project Sign began in 1945. Well, we know officially it began in 1948, but we also know that there was Air Force, Army Air Force's investigations prior to that. And you suggested there were secret Project Blue Book files that uh, are not part of the the overall Project Blue Book things that we've been seeing. Is that is that did I get that correct? Okay, so um, Project Blue Book is essentially was unclassified. I mean, the, you know, the, the twelve thousand or fifteen thousand cases, you know, are uh, are unclassified. The only thing that has been removed is the names of uh, witnesses. Um, people have told me that there was a classified side project that contained a few dozen cases. Uh, I have, uh, I was not aware of that. I don't know if it's true. Um, what, what I do know is that in the index to uh, Blue Book, you know, which we had at Northwestern. I mean, Dr. Heineck had a, a, essentially a, a carbon copy of all the files. And by the way, any, any scientist who would have wanted, you know, to uh, research the phenomenon could have had access to that without a security clearance. The Air Force would have been delighted to have scientists become involved. And I think the only one who, who did was uh, Dr. McDonald. Uh, the others were pontificating about what was in the files without ever looking at the files, including Dr. Sagan. So uh, they, they were in the index, uh, which I went through, of course, when I reconstructed the database for, for the entire Project Blue Book uh, on my own uh, with, with help from, from my wife. And um, There were a number of cases that were flagged with a star, with an asterisk, and uh, there was no corresponding file, uh, no corresponding uh, uh, papers in, in uh, records in, that I had access to. So uh, I asked Dr. Heineck, and he said, oh, well, that's, there are a few cases that are classified. And I would say, well, what happened? And he said, well, it, it, they are classified not because of what the UFO was, or, but because of where the witness was, or because of the instrument that was used. And I said, well, how come? And he said, well, uh, 
if um, if if the UFO was detected with a radar that's a prototype, that's a classified radar, we don't care whether there was a UFO or not. I mean, the radar is classified. Everything about that case is going to be classified the same way. And you've you've been in the military, you know how that you know how that works. Um, there was uh, there was a case that I, I absolutely love, where the this was uh, you know quite an early case. This woman in Alaska writes to the Air Force because she's in her garden and she looks up, and uh, the the sky is still light even though it's dark on the ground, and she sees uh, something that is flying. Uh, she doesn't hear any noise. It's very bright and it's uh, going east. Um, and this is, uh, you know, it's in a steady course. It's not a meteor. It's not a bird. It's not an airplane. It's not anything. And uh, so the, the case is classified. And uh, I, you know, when I found out what it was, I, I, I asked um, Dr. Heineck, you know, why, why did they classify that? And he said, well, um, they knew what it was. Uh, it was a U-2. Um, they were not about to say that they knew what it was. And the, sim- the simplest thing for the for Project Blue Book to do was to classify it. And well, the reason it I was asked, classified the I asked, and it was unidentified. Well, the reason I asked the question is because in, in preparing the book UFOs in the Deep State, I talked to uh, Daniel Sheehan. And he talked about a classified section of Project Blue Book, which I'd never heard about as well, and how he had gotten access because he was working with President-elect Carter uh, to answer his questions about UFOs. And he had access for a short period of time to some of the classified materials, supposedly from Project Blue Book. And when I saw that reference in in your book, I thought it might be some corroboration for what uh, Dan Sheehan had told me, some additional no, corroboration. I, think I, I heard the same story, and I'm like you. I'm a little bit puzzled by that. Uh, I was told there were, no, it's not a lot of cases, but it's a, a few dozen cases. Uh, I, have not, uh, I have not seen them. Uh, what, uh, the cases I'm aware of, and, and later I was, I was able to see them. They were all like that Alaska case. It was something that where they, they knew what it was uh, or they didn't care. Uh, but it, the, the classification had to do with the, the instrument that was used. Uh, there was a, a case that was uh, uh, where they were, there was a boat in, off the coast of Korea that saw something and reported it, and that was classified. Well, it was classified because they were about a, you know a one mile away from the the coast of North Korea, so those were not just uh, you know your ordinary fishermen. Well, let me let me interrupt here, uh, Paul. Um, you talked to Sabrina Padillo about her Sabri- experiences, right? Uh, well, this quickly, is what happens you, when you, you keep working on, on a story. Yeah, this is what happens when you keep working on a story for nine years. I mean, Jacques and I had already done the first draft of the book, and we went back to the area, and we were sitting with Jose, and he said, well, my, he said my niece was living with my father at the time, and, and when he told us that there was somebody else in the house, we said, does she know anything about this? And he goes, oh, yeah, she'd come out of the farmhouse and go to the area. Well, right away, in one year, we had to, to question her and got her testimony, which corroborated a lot of what Jose said. But uh, we realized she, was, uh, she had a lot of other information that Jose didn't know about. For instance, you know, we haven't talked about all the different metals involved here. But uh, Sabrina being, uh, you know, seven years, between five and seven, she, she says she walked on the property, saw where the crash happened. It was all black. The vegetation never grew. She was told not to go there. She saw Army coming in the back door during those years. This was from 1945 to about 1955. She said she, said, uh, she uh, was playing with this, these strips of metal, she said, because they, they didn't have any toys, 
but the father, the grandfather, would give her these strips of metal that she would crunch up, and they go back to the same shape. She said we we would think it was funny, and she will talk about it to this day and describe it perfectly. We never realized that the father, Faustina, went back on his own and found a couple of strips of memory metal. Oh, we knew the boys had picked up what they thought was angel hair and put it in a 10-pound bag and trimmed the Christmas trees with it. She verified without... Um, they saying anything that she had it in her bedroom, that she had it in a little plastic bag that was all lit up in different colors. And, and we're not sure what that is. I mean, it seems to be some kind of derivative of fiber optics. I mean, she's verifying the, the actual materials. And these kids can't make that up at that age. I mean, they don't know what, the, what would have fallen out of that particular crash. And she describes it as hurting her hands. It would pinch her hands. Uh, she would say, would bite my hands. So if you read the book, you have her exact words, because that's what I do. I can't, uh, I can't, you know, just put it in my words. They're the exact transcripts of everybody, the, the two boys, and now this year, Sabrina, who's the third witness. But I want to add something else, Kevin. When, when I was talking to Remy, he explained to me that he had gotten a, uh, the governor of Washington State elected, her name was Dixie Lee, and that she worked for the Atomic Energy Commission. And as a thank you to him, she showed him his file. And so Jacques and I have talked about this. That file did not go into any Blue Book file, Air Force file, or whatever. In 1945, that file went into the files of the Atomic Energy Commission. She said, because he said, you know, she turned over the pages and there was my case. Well, but with with Sabrina, the problem is she was born in 1953, so she wasn't a witness to the the crash or any of that. She came about later on. Yes, and she came about later on. And what she but she lived there. She lived with the grandfather. They had adopted her. Understood, so we've understood. been to the place, the the house. She just went over the the hill, and she saw the 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 site was still blackened. And actually, all the vegetation has changed, too, from that site. But she, she also... Have, does she have any of the metal that left? I mean, we talk about lots of this metal being circulated in the family members. Did Were we able to find any of that metal? No, we couldn't find that metal, but we're hoping the book will bring out people who have the fiber, you know, that, that angel hair stuff, because what the boys did was give it to the neighbors, because it, they decorated their windows and their Christmas tree with it. So we're hoping that somebody from back then looks through their Christmas decorations and will bring out a plastic bag of that stuff. There was so much of it, they gave it to the town. So, so if somebody read the, reads the book uh, from that time, will come out, maybe they saved it. You know how you save your Christmas decorations. Jacques and I are hoping somebody will come out of the woodwork and say, yeah, I was, you know, riding over there and, and uh, found this stuff. No, uh, you know, after all these years and all the secrets kept, there isn't any of the memory metal. And that particular farmhouse was burnt down by one of the relatives. So it isn't, it, it, that same structure isn't standing there anymore. So we've we've lost the opportunity to to analyze any of the metal from the craft. Did you find it odd? That no, no. We have, well from the that they found on the craft. We have we have the bracket that that uh, that Jose took as a souvenir. We have that. I mean, that's but the analysis that's something shows we that, could forget about. <laughs> well, but the, but the analysis doesn't take us into the realm of the extraterrestrial. It's basically terrestrially metal that was. The, the analysis showed it basically terrestrial metal. Terrestrial metal. Um, but, but I was, you I, know, Jacques can elaborate on that. They're still working on it. But the, um, the, 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 the point I have here is, is we, we have uh, witness testimony, but we don't have any documentation. Nobody wrote a letter. Nobody had a diary or anything like that. So we're, we're relying on the testimonies of the two boys, both of whom you were able to talk to, 
but we didn't get any of the adults who were around at the time. We haven't found any of the military personnel or, or that kind of thing. With Roswell, we've got all those other witnesses that can help us understand. Well, I think it's, I think we shouldn't be comparing this to anything else, and I don't think you can compare Roswell to anything else either. I think that this is a, a new case. It should be looked at. I think that you loved the uh, the history of the book. Uh, Jacques is an excellent writer, so he included a lot of that. And I don't think that, that in, in investigations, you know, it, it, it stands alone. I mean, it's, it stands alone. And, and as far as the area, the, um, the Socorro case, the Lottie Zamora case is mentioned there. And ironically enough, Jose was related to Zamora's wife. So all those people there, if you spend enough time there, they have a lot of secrets they're keeping. Well, let me interrupt you there because we're out of time. I wanted to do two hours. <laughs> Unfortunately, we had to cram it into an hour, so we didn't get into some of the things I wanted to talk about. There was so much more to, to talk about in the book. I want to thank both of you, Jacques and you, Paula, for coming on the program and sharing your experiences and your investigations with us here today. Uh, the book is called Trinity, A Best, Best Kept Secret. I will have more information about this at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. I appreciated their time and effort in chatting with us today. I will be back in about 167 hours. I'll be talking to um, Kathleen Martin about the Barney and Betty Hill abduction and their experiences um, there. And she's got an update to her book, Captured, that apparently has more information in it. Uh, once again, I want to thank you all for tuning in to A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Uh, thanks for tuning in.